Guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Oil and Gas Council. Today we are joined by Casey Stallings, president of Desert Royalty, a private minerals and royalties company out of Midland that was started by Casey's father, Kyle Stallings, back in 1986. During the episode, Casey talks about the ups and downs of investing in minerals over the past three decades, the lessons learned, and how their long-standing relationships with their investor base and industry peers have been a cornerstone of their success over the years. I hope you enjoy. Casey, thanks for, for joining us uh, on, on the podcast here. Absolutely. Thanks, Tim. Really appreciate the opportunity. No, absolutely. Um, let's start w- with a little background uh, personally for those who don't know you, you know, where you grew up and where you went to school and then your, your career path in the industry. I don't know if you've always been an oil patch guy, uh, always been a minerals guy. Uh, just some little insight. If you came from a different industry and then crossed over, uh, it would be good so everyone has some context. Sure, yeah. So uh, so I grew up here in Midland, Texas. Uh, you know, my, my dad has always been in the uh, in the mineral space. And so my background was kind of early on exposed to energy and just being in Midland. All of my friends' parents were, were involved in energy in some way. So it certainly is a, uh, a pretty core part of my background. Um, but I went to school at, at uh, Texas A&M, graduated in 2008, and I, I studied finance and real estate, and you know that was always something that I had some interest in, was doing something on the real estate side. But I kind of, in the back of my mind, always thought that I would probably come and work with my dad. Uh, he, he, had, he was in, already in the mineral space, already had the company, which is today Desert Royalty Company, and kind of thought that was something that would happen after school. So I had gotten engaged in 2007, was, was slotted to be married in the spring of 08. You know, uh, uh, I was finishing up school and um, I called my dad in the fall of 07 and kind of thought this was going to be the phone call where we were going to kind of learn how I was going to come back and uh, work with, uh, with Desert in some capacity. And I kind of told him, you know, going to graduate in 08, getting married soon after that. So he said, well, that's great, son. What are you going to do after you graduate? How are you going to make money? And I, it kind of hit me like, oh, he, he doesn't really uh, have a place for me at, at Desert. And it was, in hindsight, one of the best parenting moves that my dad did because it really forced me to understand, like, I've got to kind of carve my own path right now. And uh, so what I ended up doing after school was working for a commercial real estate company out of Houston. And we owned and managed office buildings um, in downtown Houston, Greenway Plaza and Gallery area. And um, I started doing that uh, in June of, of 08. And it was a great experience for me. It was, a, it was a small kind of boutique company that just had four or five buildings at the time and learned a lot. Uh, I, I was uh, managing buildings and was um, uh, doing you know, leases with tenants and uh, working with uh, tenant reps um, and learned a, a whole lot. It was really a great company in, in time for me. But unfortunately, this, uh, we were financed with Lehman Brothers. And so shortly after I started, we got hit pretty hard and we, we had to return several of our buildings back to the bank. And uh, we were kind of 
were left with a long recovery road ahead of us where um, we really got down to two buildings. A lot of people had left or had been laid off. Fortunately, I was too cheap to be fired. And so I was able to stay on board and it was really great for me because I had to uh, wear a lot of different hats that I normally wouldn't have the, the ability to wear or try. And I made a lot of mistakes, uh, but they were good for me to learn from. And so I did that for three years. And in 2011, you know, it, it was getting more and more clear that the real estate industry just had a very long road ahead of it. And meanwhile, things were really changing in the oil and gas world. And the shell revolution had just started to emerge. And I, my dad and I were talking one night and um, it made a lot of sense for, uh, for him to start growing his operations and we kind of started those those conversations in early 2011, and, and then in June, we, my wife and I moved back to Midland and uh, came to work for Desert Royalty Company as a landman slash buyer. So that, that's kind of my background before really getting into the, the space itself and, and um, was, uh, was really beneficial for me to have something outside of oil and gas and outside of Desert Royalty Company prior to to get exposed to desert. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure the, the real estate background brought uh, some, some new skill sets for you to bring to the table. I mean, if, if you could think of any non-oil and gas industry that speaks to the minerals game, real estate is probably one of the best, right? Uh, so can you maybe speak to that in, in terms of lesson learns or, or, or things that you saw in the real estate world that you're able to to bring to, to Desert Royalty? Sure. I mean, one thing that I didn't know at the time, but, um, but I didn't do it on purpose, but, you know, minerals is, is you know, classified according to the IRS as a real estate. Um, it's real property. And so there's a lot of carryover on tax laws and the way it's treated. And then having you know, tenant leases uh, was something I had to be very familiar with. And it carried over in a lot of ways to oil and gas leases, which became very important to me uh, as I made the move. So yeah, the real estate as a kind of a primer for oil and gas, and there's a lot of similarities, um, in, in, especially in regards to minerals. Yeah, one thing you've got the commonality of is you know, it's making an upfront investment and expecting a cash flow stream afterwards. And those, those principles apply on either side and it was, was you know, a, a good kind of booster getting into minerals. Now, so talk to, talk to me about the Desert Royalty store then, uh, kind of when, when it was started, is it a family business? And then, and then when, when you took it over and how it's changed from 2011 to today, um, I know you guys have had six different funds. Just kind of walk me through the evolution of, uh, of the company. Sure. I mean, uh, so it's uh, my dad founded this company, uh, Kyle Stalling. And the way it started is in, in 1986 is when he left his, um, his company job to become independent. And he and John Morgan started what is today Desert Royalty Company in, in 86. And really we're, we're buying off of, the tax roll, they had uh, really done a great job of utilizing the tax roll in a more mass efficiency way to where they were able to kind of do an early version of a mail merge and uh, reach out to a lot of owners all at once. And they really created a, a really cool concept from 86 to 1990. In 1990, uh, John and, and my dad 
both thought it made sense that they both run independent companies. And, and the result of that is John went on and started Anthem Oil and Gas, which of course has been super successful. And my dad retained the, the company, which is today Desert Royalty. And soon after that switch happened, my dad partnered with Buddy Gibb, who was a, a landman with Sun Oil at the time, to kind of partner with him on, on this company and pursue mineral acquisitions. And so all through the 90s, my dad and Buddy and, you know, they had, you know, um, uh, some administrative staff, but you know, it was a pretty small lean, lean group all through the next 10 years where they were buying mineral interest using bank debt, selling what they had to to pay off the debt and keeping as much as they could. Kind of the, the goal being to end up with, you know, uh, either, either free minerals after the sale or very creative cost basis after the sale. And so they would run the tax rolls a couple of months at a time and then go and deliver, you know, small little packages to families and sometimes oil companies and somebody who put a higher value on it than uh, they were able to aggregate it at. And that was a, a, a really important time for Desert Royalty Company because during that time, they, they created some incredible relationships with operators and geologists and engineers who had their own ideas and their own uh, strategies that they wanted to implement. And, you know, at the time in the 90s, there just wasn't many people really focusing purely on minerals. And so Kyle and Buddy had the reputation of if, you, if there's a mineral strategy, like it, it made sense to at least explore that with them and probably several others, but, but they were on a, a small list. And so they were able to create some incredible relationships that really carried over to all the way to present times now. And one of the things that kind of ended up happening in the late 90s is most of the acquisitions that they were pursuing was a result of working with one of their industry friends, whether it was an operator that wanted to do a, a water flood or a geologist that had a prospect that wanted to sell to an operator um, or an engineer that had identified a particular area that it was outperforming. And those ended up being the the targeted areas that, that we were working in. And so in the early 2000s, several of these groups that we had been buying with for years came to us or came to my dad and, and buddy. And they said, you know, we're in you know, the deals that we bring you, but we like the deals you're doing with, you know, um, this operator. We like the deals that you're doing with this engineer. And we'd like to propose we're just in every deal that you do. And that kind of became the genesis of we ought to do a, a, just a mineral fund and have a, just a standard LPGP split uh, on everything that we buy. And so in 2001, we formed our first partnership, which was kind of a proof of concept to see how it, it was going to work. And, um, and that ended up working really well. Uh, so at that point, so I mean, first off, to give context, you know, for those who aren't as familiar with the minerals and royalty space, starting in 1986, I mean, that is light years ahead of the space. I mean, Royalty Clearinghouse started in 1999. Scott Noble, do you know exactly when he started at some point in the 90s? I mean, 1986 is mm -hmm. way right. early. I mean, that's like super frontier pioneer type, type stuff. And then basically creating the mail merge and the mailers that are so common in the ground game today. It's, it's pretty, pretty awesome. Um, and then to, to do it for 14 years, kind of just organic and on your own. And then Royalty Clearinghouse comes in in 1999. And then another decade goes by without too many people really formally having a mineral strategy as well. Uh, 
you know, it, it's just a long time before the space starts to really start to materialize and, and mature like it has today. It, it's pretty cool uh, to hear that story. And then you guys formally started a fund. I mean, that in itself is, is innovative, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, I think that there's an argument here that we might have started too early. Maybe we were crazy enough to, to be focused purely on minerals um, that, that early on. Um, and there was a lot of other things that we probably could have and maybe should have done differently, but it was always a very focused strategy. And uh, that, that's proved us well in the long run, but we've never deviated from we want to own non-cost-bearing perpetual mineral interest and in good areas and buy it in a way where you can hold it. And, um, and that, that's proven to be a good strategy for us. Awesome. And so sorry, I, I cut you off. So continue. So you, you raised your first fund in 2001. And, you, you know, you're kind of learning as you go, it sounds. Uh, talk, continue the story. Yeah, so, uh, so you know, at the time we were focused on PDP plays where we were really looking at some great fields in the um, Central Basin platform. And um, we were fortunate to buy and kind of ride the, the price of oil escalating in that particular fund. And so the, those PDP numbers um, grew beyond what we modeled, which was, which was good for us. And we ultimately sold that fund in 2008, in July of 2008. And, and you know, we didn't mean to do this. I mean, everyone thought oil was going to go to two or $300 back then. But, you know, at 140 is when we sold, which at the time, like, I mean, looking back, obviously $140, it seems so obvious that you would sell. But really, we just got lucky because everyone thought it was going higher. And we, we made a, a, a good transaction. And that was kind of the genesis that ended up giving us some momentum to continue to raise funds and, and get a great investor base that Kyle and Buddy put together um, and, and just do successor funds after that. But the same, the consistent thing that has, has flowed through from our first fund to our current fund and that we'll, we'll see in our next funds is a, a long-term uh, perspective when you buy these assets. And that, that was one thing that was, was very important in our first fund and, and I think it allowed us to really see the, the ultimate value of some of these assets by having time to let them mature and let your decision, let the market dictate your decision rather than your financial structure has been something we've, we've really benefited from. And it's really credit to Colin Buddy's uh, being able to create this this network of just individual LPs that have tremendous trust in them and faith that that really gives us a buying advantage because of the, the history that they've laid. No, absolutely. Can you give a little bit of color on, you know, what your LP base is comprised of? You don't have to name names, of course. High net worth? Are we talking about family offices? Are we talking pensions, endowments, a bit of a mix of all? And, and one thing I'd like to, you know, ask is, are these primarily oil investors, oil families, or do you have some non-industry folks in the mix? Um, it, it sounds like, at least in the early days, it was very much folks from Midland, personal relationships, uh, and high net worth that, that had careers in, in oil and gas, right? Yeah, that's right. And you know, that's definitely the, the foundation of, of it that's carried over even to today, that that is still our foundation is, you know, most of our investors live here in Midland and are uh, in the oil and gas business in some way. But, um, and then that same type of investors we have primarily in Houston and Dallas and Tyler and Austin and, and you know, others as well. But, uh, but that same uh, demographic kind of has been consistent all the way through of it, private individuals that like 
long-term ownership in minerals. And it's either because they're in the business themselves and they can understand really easily why owning it with a long-term perspective is a, a creative way of owning this asset, or it's uh, people that are not in the industry but understand minerals really well and have a have an appetite to get exposure to them. So, it, it, But we don't have any endowments or pensions or any type of institutional investor. It's, it's all traditional individual LPs that have built this business, and, and it's it, it's really an amazing set of networks that uh, that Kyle and Buddy have put together that we get to benefit from today. No, absolutely. I mean, you, you kind of joked around tongue in cheek about maybe you guys were too early. I think if there's one thing to pull away from that, there's going to be very few who could pull together the the scale of capital you've raised, fund fund in, fund out um, from just individuals. And so I think that that for sure is is because of the longevity of you guys being in the space and being the one of the few um, for a very long time, right? No, I think you're right. And glad Kyle and Buddy had that long-term mindset in the in the 80s and 90s to start building that platform that would warrant where where Desert is today. So let's let's kind of talk about I, I, my previous question was just: Are these more oil and gas professionals, individuals, families that are investing with you, or are they generalists? Let Let's talk to the investors and the high net worth folks out there that aren't in oil and gas, but would have the same type of investment parameters um, for managing their wealth. Why, you know, can you speak to the perspective of, of Desert, who's acting on behalf of these types of families and individuals, why this has been such a good space? Can you compare it maybe with, with other types of investments out there so they can kind of understand the behavior of it? You know, bonds, as an example, you put your your real estate hat on and kind of make some parallels there just as you guys go to either sell assets going forward or bring in additional folks in, in fundraising in the future you know one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is just to to educate different types of investors out there that traditionally haven't been in oil and gas because i think there's some really the mineral space is, is a unique way to get exposure in in oil and gas and it it's just a, a different look and feel to traditional EMP. So can you kind of speak to that um, in, in the language that a, that a family office or a high net worth or private wealth manager might, might understand? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, one, I mean, I think it's important to realize that you know, this was not really an investable industry, you know, probably you said before Viper really became, it came into the play. I mean, there was always been royalty trusts and, you know, and you could have invested in as an LP in Blackstone, or you know, there was, but it was there was a barrier of entry to how you were going to get exposure to this as just a generalist investor. And today, that, that's much more accessible with many private funds being raised. Obviously, we've got more mineral companies that are public that you can invest in, um, and obviously, investing in any other of the energy focused private equity companies get you exposure indirectly to, to this asset class. So it's not surprising, though, that, that it's um, a little bit foreign because it was just not a something that was practically investable just five or six years ago. It, but, but the reason that, that I think it's kind of an interesting investment today to the generalist is, you know, the thing that I think set it apart is uh, a one-time investment, I think, is, is is important to to understand is that investment in minerals is a capital investment into the ground and not ongoing expenses that, that are necessary in order to benefit from the asset that you purchased. And I, I think that when you look at the historical returns, I mean, not in store company, but probably a lot of companies that bought at the right times and held for a long time, 
you know, they're very accretive, especially when you look at it compared to like what interest rates are or what bonds are today. I mean, it, it's um, if you're looking for yield, minerals has, has been a, a good vehicle to do that. And I think that's one of the reasons that Viper has had so much success. It's a it's a yield vehicle that has has delivered, you know, based on on when you bought and what you did. But the the fact that you can make a one time investment and get yield, I think, is is an important thing to understand about minerals specifically. Can you talk? I mean, you guys have three decades of exposure. I'm sure you have stuff in there from the very early days, uh, kind of predating your your funds. You've gone through yep. um, the, the the formation of the majors and super majors. Then you know everything's in decline and the industry's dying a bit. And then and then shale, the shale revolution comes in. Hundred forty dollar oil, gas prices going through the roof, and you know LNG mm. projects coming on. I mean, and now and now we're set here today, early April two thousand twenty, with COVID nineteen and and a price war kind of double black swan in one swoop. How that minerals portfolio has not only weathered the storm, but you know, gone through different bankruptcy cycles. It, you, you're basically getting free upside on technology innovation. Would love for you to just, I mean, I'm, I'm hitting a lot of points here, but it's, it's very, very different in, from the late eighties to today. But, you know, the, the returns are there, you're saying. It's consistent. You're not putting any additional costs in if you bought and you just held. But, you know, how has the portfolio's performance weathered all the, all the change? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, we're definitely negatively impacted on some of these things as well. I mean, it was, some of our earlier funds were heavily exposed to gas. It just seemed inconceivable to run your models at $2 gas. Uh, like that would never happen uh, when when you buy these buys. So we definitely have have investments that we've made in our funds that, because of these cycles, we wish we wouldn't have made. But that's kind of the business that we're we're signing up for here. Is you don't control timing, you don't control the market, things change. But but you, the inverse of that is also true of when you buy something in the Permian Basin because or shallow spray bray wells um, in you know 2004 and then it turns out that there's four formations beyond that that you didn't pay for, didn't know about, that you get the benefit of that. And so I think on the whole, um, it, it is what makes the whole thing work if you're patient and give it enough time. And, and, you know, right now as we're talking, you know, the future is extremely unknown. And when the new normal is, is established is, is something that we don't know when and what that looks like. But, you know, from, from our previous 30 years, a very long-term minded focused on good quality rock and, and not needing immediate development as part of your success story is, is just crucial to, to being satisfied with the investment that you make. How, can, can you speak a little bit about the Desert Royalty portfolio? I mean, being in Midland, I'm sure there's a very strong base of assets in the Permian Basin. But have you guys bought in other basins around around the country? Uh, you know, being in the game as long as you have been, are you predominantly you know a PDP buying shop? Do you have you bought undeveloped stuff? Just a little bit of color there, and and you know, kind of going forward, what what you might be focused on, things you might be open to with your industry peers, you know, partnering on deals or things of that nature. Sure. Yeah. So you know, I think the the 
the type of asset that we focus on is is kind of dictated on where we are in the market. And there's certainly long seasons where PDP was the focus of, of desert. And, and there was long seasons where undeveloped was the focus and from you know, 2010 to really 2018, 19, even, I mean, undeveloped in the Permian Basin was extremely attractive and where we wanted to, to invest the money in, and, and had a lot of confidence in the undeveloped locations. And we could you know, see and, and felt you know, like we could model those undeveloped locations, and that was where the the value was. Um, and and plus, like PDP in the Permian, you, you know, for it's been a long time since you could buy acreage um, that had undeveloped potential for PDP. And so, if you wanted to stay in the game, then you had to go beyond PDP. And and maybe those days are returning. Um, I, you know, who knows? But moving forward, I think that like that obviously gives everyone the most comfort is buying on a PDP basis. And I don't know if that's possible. I don't think it is today, right now in the Permian Basin, but I think that it probably should trend that direction. Um, I, I, I think that it's it's extremely hard as a buyer to have any confidence today on what does the future look like of, of the investment we're making. And it's hard to feel like you're making a prudent investment on behalf of your investors right now betting on the comp. And, and so I think that, you know, I, I really couldn't tell you what our strategy is going to be moving forward or what, what type of asset we're going to focus. I know that it's um, not going to be anything that we don't have high confidence in it being the same quality of asset that we've made for our investors, which you know, right now means we're not buying anything. And, you know, I think that there needs to be a, a reset in the market and, you know, make we might be wrong and maybe we should be buying at these slightly discounted prices today. I hope we are, but you know, we, we think just giving it time to, for us to understand what uh, the new world looks like is extremely important before making any big decisions. Uh, I got something to kind of just throw out there as, as food for thought. So, I mean, you guys are, are very much longer, longer term because of your investor base. Are there certain things, I mean, there is a ton of uncertainty in the short term, but if you're kind of bullish on, on oil and gas minerals, you do believe at some point oil prices will return, demand will return, development will return. Are there overlying things that you put more weight in? Uh, you know, one conversation I had recently, which I thought was interesting is, you know, if, if you look at the rock uh, as being the most important aspect of buying, Right now, you know, development, it's really difficult to figure out when stuff is going to get developed and, and really who's going to develop it because there's going to be a lot of changing of the guard right, um, in the upcoming months and years with bankruptcies and consolidation. And so one, one thing, just as a side note, to mention to investors who are listening is that you have bankruptcy protection with minerals. If a company that is operating over your minerals goes bankrupt or gets acquired, you know, you hold the asset into perpetuity and then just whoever, whoever becomes the operator going forward uh, will produce it and then you, you can continue to get those checks. So in, in a way, if you're looking at it at a, a much longer tailed uh, perspective, do you just kind of buy the best rock you can buy in the core core areas that you know will get developed when oil prices return and, and put less weight into who actually is over it now? Um, or do you focus on who's the strongest company that's going to survive and only try to buy under them? I mean, if you have a shorter term 
view on cat on your capital and you have to you know focus on on cash flow today it's more important because you have to exit i think the operator is is much more important but you know i, I don't know if it's super contrarian to almost target companies who might might go bankrupt you know as long as they have really good assets uh it could theoretically someone really strong out of this downturn pick them up and then you have a stronger operator that that's going to develop those assets and and you theoretically bought it for cheap i don't know just some ideas yeah that's really the the bottom line is like it you know even though we're long-term minded we still want to make as much money as fast as possible and so, well, it, you know, for us to focus on operators that have great rock but not great balance sheets is, is something that it, it does cater to our strategy. But it, it depends about the, on the discount that you get, I think. And that, that's one thing that I think the mineral market has always been a little slow to respond to is, you know, is, is you don't necessarily inherently get that discount on the ground when you're a, a, a grassroots aggregator. Now, maybe you get it from a professional that understands the story and doesn't want to go through this this heartburn and, and you can have a intelligent conversation about why this asset's worth more than than this one but um but i think in in concept you're right like if you could go and buy a, a some great rock for, from an operator that has a lot of uncertainty in its future like i mean that that works very well with our funds and but on the whole if we would much rather buy a asset with a quality operator that is not uh, doesn't have these uncertainties ahead of it and pay the same price as somebody with uncertainty. And unfortunately, I think right now where we're at is like that, that distinction hasn't really been established. Not yet, at least, I don't think. Yeah, in a world where you're, you're just clawing for certainty anywhere you can get it, I don't think you have to go find, you know, go searching for more uncertainty, right? So it, it, it might be a bit too early days to to take a viewpoint like that. Um, well, listen, Casey, this has been great. Any, any kind of closing comments here, messages to your peers, to landowners, to the investment community on kind of a public service announcement or just the desert royalty story, things you guys would be open to, you know, conversations about partnering or, or, or whatever. I'll, I'll give you the floor before we wrap up the episode. Sure. No, thanks. I, you know, I, one thing that I think we've really benefited from is definitely talking with other people in the industry. Um, and I, I, I think that we've been relatively creative on different ways to, you know, combine what Desert can bring to the table with, with other people. Uh, I, I certainly would welcome any, any ideas and thoughts on this. And, you know, I think that one thing that I think is true is that we've got a long road ahead of us before this industry looks like it did in, you know, 2018, 2019. And I think it's going to be a hard monster years for sure. And the industry has always been unique, I think, on how we've been kind of banded together. I mean, it's, it's kind of a unique group to to be in minerals and kind of a small group. And it's kind of fun that when you go and to a mineral conference or when you start talking with other mineral guys, we all know each other. And that, whether you, know, you live in Midland, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, uh, like there's a, it's a pretty small niche group. And, you know, I would just encourage everyone to be to maintain that that sense of community that we've had here. Because I think it's going to be tough for a lot of people. Being willing to work with other companies in any way you can to get deals done. Still, I think that getting deals done is is going to be a a hard thing to do. And 
I think knowing what other companies' benefits are and using those benefits to kind of supercharge your own benefits is, is something that needs to be done so we can continue to transact and continue to be active in the space. But I think it's going to mean being more transparent, just willing to uh, willing to work together more than we ever have. Even though we have a great reputation of that, I think that it's very important for us to do that moving forward. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a great closing comment. I'd echo that, you know, aligning incentives and collaborating through this, you know, you can do more as a unit than individually um, and just intelligent sharing, bringing people in on deal flow. It's all, it's all going to benefit um, everyone in the long run. Right. So Casey, thanks for your time, sir. Uh, and sharing the story. Really, really cool to have you on the podcast uh, as the original, um, one of the original companies out there in the space. So keep doing what you're doing, you know, good luck with, with everything going forward with you and your family and the team. And, and we'll keep in touch. Thanks, Sam. Really appreciate it. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. If you're interested in meeting KC or any of the other executives in our network, then I encourage you to join us at our upcoming North Am Royalties Assembly in Houston and our private oil and gas investment assembly at the New York Stock Exchange later this year. For more information, please email me at tim.powell, that is P-A-W-U-L, at oilcouncil.com or visit our website at www.oilcouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share the episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.